Hey, Prime members, you can listen to CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. If you feel like your business is drowning in inefficiencies, it might be time to decode the problem and break it down by the numbers. Let's start with 37,000. That's the vast community of business owners who've embraced NetSuite. 25, that's the number of years that NetSuite has been revolutionizing financial workflows and accelerating success. Which brings us to one. NetSuite offers tailored solutions, all consolidated within one streamlined platform. Unlock the power of NetSuite today. Download our acclaimed KPI checklist for free. Just head to netsuite.com slash cbs. That's netsuite.com slash cbs. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, Every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. As you know, not that long ago, artificial intelligence, AI, was the stuff of science fiction. No more. These days, AI touches nearly every part of our lives. But cheating on term papers is one thing. Now, as Ted Koppel will tell us, AI is becoming a major factor in a field where the stakes are far higher, the battlefield. Artificial intelligence has beaten the best in the world at chess, at Go, and at Texas Hold'em. But those, after all, are just games. These days, AI is being developed and deployed by the most sophisticated militaries in the world. And not a one of them is playing games. Coming up on Sunday morning. With Connor Knighton, we'll have a Sunday morning episode of CSI, where crime scene investigators are looking into solving crimes that are truly something wild. Rebecca Kagan is a veterinary forensic pathologist. The most interesting part of She's this. attempting to figure out how this endangered California condor died. Did you enter vet school even knowing that this job existed? No. <laughs> I was going to be a dog and cat vet. Instead, Kagan joined a team of scientists at a one-of-a-kind crime lab. Is there anything else like this in the world? Like this facility with the scope that we have? No. We go inside the National Fish and Wildlife Forensics Lab, ahead on Sunday morning. Martha Teichner visits with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Hernan Diaz. Robert Costa talks power and politics with former Washington Post executive editor Marty Barron. Plus, commentary from economist Robert Reich. And more. It's the first Sunday of the month, October 1st, 2023. And we'll be back in a moment. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? 
Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. They're staples of many a primetime police procedural, crime scene investigators. They're scientists helping to solve all sorts of crimes, perhaps None more unusual than those our Connor Knighton has been looking into. At this crime lab in Oregon, an elite team of super sleuths examines evidence sent in from across the world. Their tools may look familiar, but their cases can get pretty wild. Welcome to CSI Ashland, home of the National Fish and Wildlife Forensics Laboratory. We're the only U.S. federal crime lab devoted to criminal investigations focusing on wildlife. Barry Baker is the deputy director of the lab, founded in 1988 to solve wildlife crimes. When we're talking wildlife crime, I assume that means human versus wildlife crime. This is not wildlife on wildlife crime. This is if an eagle steals something from a fox den, we're not investigating that. Yeah, we're looking for evidence of humans committing crimes against animals. There are many different breeds of crime. The lab is run by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and supports the investigations of more than 200 special agents and inspectors in the U.S. and works with more than 150 countries which have signed the U.N.'s Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora Treaty. Quite a bit of the lab's work involves illegal products made from animals. Everything from fur coats, to purses, to ivory sculptures crafted out of elephant tusks. When an agent at a porter shipping facility sees something suspicious, that gets sent in. There was a large shipment in Miami that was seized a few years ago where they were attempting to smuggle these and claiming that it was uh, blue plastics for recycling, uh, where in fact they were painting them to try to disguise the fact that they came from sea turtles and they were being smuggled. I mean, I can certainly see why someone might fall for this. Using forensic science, the lab can not only figure out what something is, but potentially where that protected species came from, which can be helpful when tracking down poachers. Officers out in the field work the cases, but they need their evidence to be analyzed here. Why have so many different varieties of antelope? Why is this helpful to you? Yeah, so there are so many animals that are in the wildlife trade that we need representatives to help us identify them when they come to us as evidence. 
The lab maintains a giant repository of specimens, both seized and donated, to use as references when they need to make comparisons during active investigations. They've got everything from bugs to bison. There are drawers of bones and birds. This is my to-do list. Johnny French is the human in charge of the collection. In here is all of our donated specimens from zoos. So this big pile right here is a giraffe. Back in the back, there's an orangutan. There's a gorilla in here, a couple of bonobos. Does anybody accidentally leave their lunch in here? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> there is lunch in here, though, for the flesh-eating beetles who clean the bones before specimens can be examined or added to the library. There's never a dull moment in the world of wildlife forensics. I always get to learn something every day. You know the old saying, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I've never been in the wrong room here. So if you have a question, you always have a world-renowned expert that you can just go and ask. In the exam room, you'll find veterinary forensic pathologist Rebecca Kagan. Basically, I solve mysteries. There's a dead animal, and they want to know how it died, and I figure out what happens. The lab doesn't accept live animals, but when wildlife dies under suspicious circumstances, Kagan is on the case. Red-tailed hawks are significantly larger. Sometimes teaming up with co-workers like ornithologist Jessica Terrell. There's the feet. Wow. An animal might have been electrocuted. If it turns out that's because a power company didn't take proper precautions, that could end up being a crime. It might have been poisoned. Maybe it was shot. A lot of these condors are lead poisoning cases. That's or maybe totally it was not. The ingested metal is right here. This bird literally ate lead. It ingested a bullet used to kill a different animal. When animals are the victims, clues can be hard to come by. Unlike a human mysterious death where the neighbor can say, yeah, I saw them yesterday, or you know, they didn't collect their mail, and those are clues that help you figure out when somebody died. We don't get any of that with wildlife. The team here also gets very little information about how their findings are ultimately used, and that's by design. They're not told much about the cases so that they're not biased. Federal authorities made some key discoveries, bones of big cats. Of course, some cases are so big, they find out anyway. This is what the Tiger King was doing to his tigers. He was putting bullets in the brain case of his old tigers. So French realized after the fact that he'd worked on tigers, which looked similar to this specimen, used in the trial, which led to the conviction of the man known as Joe Exotic. Counts three through seven of the indictment are for shooting and killing five tigers. Made famous in the Netflix documentary series, Tiger King. Doing this type of work can take a toll. Do you find yourself thinking about the life that that animal lived? I try not to. It's better not to. This is a hard enough job. It's a rewarding job, but it's hard enough without thinking of what people will, are willing to do for animals. There are certainly people who are willing to do almost anything to obtain a rare or endangered animal. The illegal trade in wildlife is estimated to be worth $20 billion a year. But the existence of a lab like this is also evidence of the good people are willing to do for animals. Solving cases on behalf of creatures who can't speak for themselves. This isn't just a United States problem. It's not just a, a, a country of origin problem for where these animals live. This is a problem that humanity really needs to think about and focus on how we're going to proceed living with this planet.
When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Believe it or not, the presidential election is little more than one year away. And once again, it's looking like the role of a free press will be critical. Robert Costa is talking with a man who's been on the front lines of the information wars. We need to focus on the institution, not the individual priests. You may think you know Marty Barron from Spotlight. And show me this was systemic, that it came from the top down. The Oscar-winning film about the Boston Globe's investigation of the Catholic Church. We're going after the system. But to know the real Marty Barron is to read his new book, Collision of Power, which takes readers inside what he did after Spotlight, editing the Washington Post with billionaire Amazon founder Jeff Bezos as its owner, and with Donald Trump in the White House. What did that searing experience of covering the Catholic Church in Boston do to inform you when it came time to cover Trump? Well, uh, it informed me that we always have to confront power. We always have to hold power to account. What's it like to be back in Washington? Uh, it's a little strange. As a former reporter at The Post, I worked with Barron for years as he dealt with deadlines and challenges. Do you miss being editor of The Washington Post? Uh, no, uh, actually. Catching up with him at the National Press Club, he shared something he had long kept secret, a private dinner he, Bezos, and Post leaders had with Trump in June 2017, as Trump was growing furious with the paper's reporting. What was your first impression of Trump when you sat down with him for dinner? That he was trying to be charming, but I felt that it was a superficial charm. I felt that he would use the occasion to lean on Bezos. Uh, that was my fear all along. You're right that Trump keeps kind of elbowing you at the table. Yeah, every time I was sitting uh, to his left, and every time he said something that was negative about the, about the post, about how we were the worst and, and the way that we treated him, he would just sort of poke me with his elbow. It was clear that he was trying to send me a message. Barron came a decade ago to The Post, a paper famed for its coverage of Watergate. Bernstein got another source. The guy just is confirmed. If there's any doubt, we can run it tomorrow. You don't have to. The story's solid. We're sure of it. Okay, we go with it. But The Post was also struggling. And a year in, one of the crown jewels of journalism was sold to Jeff Bezos. When Bezos buys the paper, were you alarmed? I wouldn't say alarmed, but I was concerned. I didn't know what kind of influence he would have over our coverage. I didn't know him at all. On the other hand, I was actually hopeful because the, the post wasn't really going anywhere at that point except down. 
Barron often had to swat away conspiracy theories that Bezos had a hidden hand in news coverage. Trump insisted to you and to so many others, he told me once that he truly believed Bezos controlled the Post. Yeah, that's what he thought. I mean, if, if Bezos were telling me what to do as a journalist, I would have quit. Um, I'm not going to do that. Was there ever a moment where you had a bit of skepticism that this guy, this billionaire, really wanted what's best for the country and what was best for the paper? I really didn't have a doubt about that. I never saw any evidence that he was using the news organization for his own personal purposes, his commercial purposes, or anything like that. Bezos, of course, was not the only figure hovering over Barron's shoulder. The number one enabler of the Democrats is the fake news media right back there. When Trump announced in 2015, a lot of people dismissed him. And look, he, immediately after his announcement, um, he commanded the support of about a third of the Republican Party. How could you ignore that? So we needed to treat him seriously as a political candidate, as a political force. And we're going to keep winning, 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 and I love you. We're For Barron, covering Trump well meant love. digging deep, not giving him a platform. I think it was terrible. I mean, running those entire rallies, no commentary in between, no contradiction of, of the falsehoods and lies that he was saying during those those rallies. That was a real mistake. It was free advertising for it was free advertising for Trump. Once Trump won the presidency, Barron's message to the newsroom was we're not at war. We're at work. Trump didn't buy it and began to call Barron to lash out. I keep coming back in your book to that final conversation you have on the phone with then President Trump. Uh, he was very critical of our coverage, and he said, you're doing this because of Amazon, you're doing this because of Bezos. So I told him that it was just completely false. I said, it's false, and you know it's false. And, uh, well, then he broke out on a bunch of profanities. He shouted at you. He shouted at me, he used profanities. He said to you, in one of his final phrases, everything the Post is doing is a big, fat lie. Right. Yeah, well, that's true. That's what he said. Um, and of course, that too is not true. We were doing our job honestly and honorably. We had an absolute obligation to uh, hold politicians to account, including the president of the United States. It's our highest obligation. That obligation extends to coverage of the upcoming presidential election. Are journalists ready for what's to come in 2024 with this presidential campaign? I'm not sure we are ready, uh, frankly. Barron's uh, advice, keep working. Uh, we should talk to everybody. We, we should listen to all people. We should be generous in listening to them, hear everything they have to say. We should look at all of the evidence and do a rigorous job of reporting and then tell people what we've actually learned. Fairness also means being fair to the public, and that means telling them what we, we have found to be true. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. 
Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Artificial intelligence, AI, is changing the rules affecting nearly every aspect of our lives. As you've probably heard, it's a powerful tool. So powerful, it's causing a new arms race of sorts, an arms race with consequences that are nothing less than life and death. Here's senior contributor Ted Koppel. We are on the verge, really, of a new era. Earlier this year, House and Senate committees and subcommittees heard a good bit of alarming testimony about... Government cannot govern AI if it does not understand AI. There are so many questions. Artificial intelligence and China. We're in direct competition with China. We win or they win. The Chinese Communist Party deeply understands the potential for AI to disrupt warfare. AI is China's Apollo project. The Chinese have something called civil-military fusion, which basically says the government can demand the cooperation of any company, any academic institution, any scientist in support of its military. That's Michelle Flournoy, Undersecretary of Defense in the Obama administration. We have a very different approach. Um, we have a, a truly private sector, and individuals and scientists and academics and companies get to choose whether they want to contribute to national security which may be as good a place as any to slow down for a moment. Because if we're going to understand the future of artificial intelligence in national security, it may help to take a look back Gary has arrived. to when AI was proving its potential on a couple of board games. In 1997, Gary Kasparov widely regarded as one of the greatest chess masters of all time, accepted the challenge from IBM's Deep Blue. He won that first game, but that was it. Kasparov is, is doing some very strange things right now. He almost seems to be talking to himself. Whoa! Kasparov has resigned. On one level, Kasparov must have seen it coming. He looks like a guy who's facing his own executioners. The ancient game of Go is hugely popular in Asia, even more complicated than chess. This young South Korean Lee Sedol was considered perhaps the greatest Go player in the world. The award-winning documentary Alpha Go captured the media frenzy in 2016 before the first of five challenge matches between Lee Sedol and a specially designed AI program. Lisa Dole and human intuition were crushed four games to one. Lisa Dole just slapped himself on the side of the head. But what was a staggering headline-making event only a few years ago is already little more than a footnote in the evolution of artificial intelligence which left poker. Heads up, no limit, Texas Hold'em. People get to lie in poker. Decisions have to be made on imperfect information, which is precisely what attracted the attention of Thomas Sandholm, a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon. 
almost all problems in the real world are imperfect information games. In the sense that the other players know things that I don't know, and I know things that the other players don't know. In 2017, the team at Carnegie Mellon issued a challenge to four professional poker players, including Jason Liss. We really wanted to fight for humanity and show that our beloved game of poker was so complex that humans still had an edge over um, AIs. Does AI play like a human? It played very much unlike a human. An AI can know that it's going to play a certain hand 13% of the time and have a much more complex strategy than a human mind is able to have. But you were representing humanity and you lost. <laughs> Rubbing salt in the wound, I had forgotten by now. But for us, like yes, we wanted to demonstrate that this game was so complex that AI had not quite gotten there yet. Losing to that AI made me realize that this technology had gotten very advanced. The techniques that we developed were not really techniques for solving poker per se. They were techniques for solving imperfect information games more generally. Basically, poker is a civilized, relatively civilized form of warfare. That is a good way to put it. We're not out there with guns, tanks, and planes, but we're out there with chips and cards and we're, we're waging battle there. It's still, at the end of the day, a strategy game. Having sharpened their skills on poker, Professor Sandholm's AI company, Strategy Robot, the behaviors are playing out exactly how we would expect, now work as Pentagon contractors, filling in the gaps of imperfect information. We're trying to help the nation and our allies have a superior AI capability for this type of decision making. So I'm assuming that that kind of information is being funneled to the Ukrainian military. I can't comment on that. Okay. But whatever you have, you give to the Pentagon. What the Pentagon That's does right. with it is none of your business. Well, it is our business. I just can't talk about it. <laughs> okay. But it, is it fair to say that some of the same principles that are applied to AI playing poker are now being applied to a war that is being fought? To the current war, I can't comment, but for military strategy operations and tactics in general, yes. Yes. AI in warfighting is already a foregone conclusion. For the moment, though, U.S. policy insists that there always be human oversight. Artificial intelligence. Yeah. It's all we hear about, read about, see, overhyped? Yes and no. And there's a new office at the Pentagon under the cautious guidance of Dr. Craig Martell to ensure that the policy is implemented. My office, the Chief Digital and AI Office, has a, a pretty unique role. What we're going to do is provide guardrails and policies that say, if you're going to acquire AI, here's what it's like to do it responsibly. If you're going to deploy AI, here's how you have to evaluate it. What that boils down to is a question of confidence when the wrong decision will cost lives. So imagine an AI told a commander, do action A. And that the commander, through all his or her training, would have said, do action B. What should that commander do? Should the commander listen to that machine or should the commander listen to uh, his or her training and her intuition? Excellent question. Right. 
What's your answer? If the DOD is good at one thing, we are very good at training. Training, 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 training. And through all of that training, if the commander got used to trusting that machine, then the commander might trust that machine. If the commander got used to not trusting the machine, then the commander wouldn't. If that sounds like a gigantic waffle, it is. But it also has the additional virtue of containing more than a grain of truth. Jason Liss, the dethroned poker champion, speaks from personal experience. I can take you back to the beginning of this AI challenge. AI told me how to play a hand a certain way. I would have believed from my experience, from what the AI was telling me, that this is not good advice. And my conventional wisdom and my understanding of strategy was the most optimal. However, over time, playing against the AI for thousands of hands, finally that confidence builds up and eventually it's trusted for these higher stakes decisions. The thing that keeps me up at night is really what if in these military settings we fall behind, for example, China in our decision-making AI technology. Do you think that's happening? I think China has caught up in AI with the US overall, and uh, we're kind of on par right now. I think in military AI, China has much better pickup in actually adopting AI in the military. I don't think we know exactly how fast they're moving. That's former Undersecretary of Defense, Michelle Florner. Um, I think we cannot afford to take our foot off the gas. When you think about, you know, a China scenario, if China's moving against Taiwan, if you wait until they're actually attacking Taiwan to have that sense of urgency and to respond, it's going to be over before the first new piece of whatever you think you need actually arrives. So to me, that means that we haven't fully absorbed the urgency of doing this. Which is precisely what makes this next statement, and it does accurately reflect U.S. policy, difficult to accept. So we have got to proceed with development, but with a very strong ethical and normative framework in place that ensures that the only AI we actually deploy for military purposes is safe, is secure, is responsible, is explainable, is trustworthy. But this notion that AI is going to be making large campaign-level decisions in warfare, I don't see that given our values as a democracy, given the norms that we've established already. And yet, when we come up against the competition and we come to believe that our competitors are not being bound by the same mm -hmm. ethical guidelines, what do you do? If an adversary uses a weapon for, you know, that creates massive civilian casualties or things that are equivalent to war crimes. We don't say, okay, well, we have to do that too. We call them out on it and we try to sanction them. I'm not sure I accept that. There have, there have simply been too many times, going back to 1945 mm -hmm. and the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, mm -hmm. when we clearly were not bound. Yeah. by those kinds of strictures. Well, that, that's fair, that's fair. And when we feel that an adversary is gaining advantages over us, mm -hmm. I'm not altogether confident that we would remain bound by those kind of strictures. Yeah, my hope would be that we wouldn't abandon the same principles that, as they did. Because at the end of the day, how we fight says a lot about who we are. 
Precisely the argument made last summer when the Biden administration sent a shipment of cluster bombs banned by more than 120 countries to Ukraine. Plus munitions, why now? Running out of ammunition. Running out of ammunition. The issue before us, though, is human oversight of all military AI programs. The mistakes that I see in life, almost all of them are made by humans. That's Professor Thomas Sandholm again. People think that, you know, there should be human oversight of AI, which I actually do believe there should be human oversight of AI, but there should also be AI oversight of humans. So the oversight should be both directions, and that balance of oversight is going to shift over time. There is, when you think about it, a pattern that different artificial intelligence programs established in the games they won over the very best players in the world, in poker, in Go, and in chess. Hardly anyone believed that it could happen, until, of course, it did. That's right. Humans believe that they're better at decision-making than they really are. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Some novels are so seamlessly written, it's hard to imagine the years of hard work that went into writing them. With Martha Teichner, time for a master class in the writer's craft from best-selling author Hernan Diaz. I prefer to write with this pen because I, if one can feel love for objects, I, I, I feel love for this pen. Hernan Diaz writes longhand. There is the sensual experience of, of writing longhand. Uh, there is something about the murmur of the pen on the paper. There is nothing like it for me. He covers every square inch of every page in his notebooks. Look at this crazy page. Uh, look, but not up close. He's uncomfortable, even a little bit superstitious, about letting a camera capture something so intimate and personal. This is trust. This is trust. This is book two of trust. I, I brought the handwritten manuscript of the novel that just won him the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, absolutely brilliant. An international bestseller published in 35 languages. Trust is about how money is made. The kaleidoscopic telling of the same story in four different voices. One novel in four books. I think the most pleasurable book to write was the first one because I came up with a conceit that allowed me to write in this obsolete, beautiful tone. Yeah. And I was so happy. Yeah. 
think Edith Wharton's novels about wealth and class during the Gilded Age at the end of the 19th century. She's a major influence in my writing, in my way of thinking about prose and the English language and the novel as a form. Wharton's home, The Mount, in Lenox, Massachusetts, is where Diaz's book event took place. Her family was part of the privileged class called Old New York Society. Her father did not work. His family money came from his grandfather who made it in shipping. Lucretia, the mother's family, dated back to the Mayflower. A moneyed world where money isn't mentioned, but it does speak. In other words, exactly the kind of world that the stratospherically rich fictional tycoon in trust comes from. My job is about being right, always. And if I'm ever wrong, I will use all the means at my disposal to bend and align reality in such a way that my mistake ceases to be a mistake. That's a shocking notion. It is a shocking notion. In the style of the great man memoir, he pontificates about manipulating markets during the crazy, booming 1920s. And then again, when Wall Street crashes in 1929, his fortune growing exponentially, while other people are ruined. Then Diaz twists the kaleidoscope, so readers see the man's wife through her diary. As I started reading about American finance and the history of, of money-making in, in America, it became absolutely apparent that this was a, a male world, a, an, an utterly womanless world. And it was crushing also doing my research and going through the papers of these uh, the wives of real American tycoons to see uh, uh, how suffocating and claustrophobic uh, most of their lives were. Diaz researches like the PhD scholar he is, and then sets about myth-busting, taking tropes of the American story and picking them apart. I'm lucky to live a few blocks away from here, so I, I got to inhabit the world of the novel. And one of my main characters lives there, was a big Italian enclave, enclave that way. And then over there, of course, is the financial district. A universe, not just a river apart at the time the events of the book take place. The difference between this and this. The book is very much interested in this dissonance, in this contrast of these two realities on either side of the East River. I am the son of Italian immigrants. Uh, they went to Buenos Aires, Argentina, but they could just as well have ended here in Brooklyn. And I don't think you can write about New York City without writing about immigration. This is a city of immigrants, uh, all of us. Oh, there's the Statue of Liberty, there's right over there. 50 now, Hernan Diaz moved to Sweden at the age of two. His parents forced to flee Argentina after a military coup. We spoke Spanish at home, but I spoke Swedish out in the world. And um, I went to grade school there, and then uh, with the return of democracy, we all moved back to Argentina. I can't say I was happy at the time. I think it was very hard for me. And I think the decision to, to move at age 23, 24, 
uh, first to London, where I lived for a couple of years, and then to Brooklyn here, where I've been for over 25 years now, had to do, you know, with choosing my own linguistic home, and that was that was English. I love the sound of English, the music of English. I love the things my face has to do to speak English. It feels good. It was a lifesaver. I, you know, a true refuge. Hernan Diaz also loves libraries. And this is your special... This is, this is it. This is, this is where it all happened. Particularly his favorite spot in this one, at the Center for Brooklyn History near his home. Most of the things that I've written uh, since I moved to this neighborhood, which was in 2010, I've written in, in this room. For years, without recognition. It was a sad, dark, long stretch of my life, you know, under the cold shadow of rejection that went on for a really, really, really long time. Um, and I kept writing just out of sheer love of language and, and sentences. Until, at last, a miracle of validation. He sent the book he wrote in these red notebooks to a small publisher in Minneapolis. They have one day a year where they accept unsolicited submissions. His lucky day. They, they took it on without, without any kind of questions. And your reaction? There were a lot of tears. His novel, In the Distance, an eerie genre-bending Western, was named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2018. And then, this year, he won for trust. Over the course of five years, these two massive things happened. Uh, It's a lot to take in, really. But my goals have not changed. Um, My goal is always that the sentence that I'm writing is as beautiful as it can be. Like this one, at the end of trust. Words peeling off from things, in and out of sleep, like a needle coming out from under a black cloth and then vanishing again, unthreaded. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. See for Smart Energy. Stay focused. I'm Mo Rocca, and I'm excited to announce season four of my podcast, Mobituaries. I've got a whole new bunch of stories to share with you about the most fascinating people and things who are no longer with us. From famous figures who died on the very same day to the things I wish would die, like buffets. Listen to Mobituaries with Mo Rocca on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Congress narrowly averted a government shutdown last night. Still, that doesn't mean the problem has gone away. We have thoughts this morning from economist Robert Reich. 
We averted a government shutdown for now, but this kind of last-minute and temporary perils of Pauline drama is itself harmful to America. Millions of people didn't know if they'd continue to get disaster relief or clean water protection or food safety inspections, cancer research, nutrition programs for children. Federal workers such as air traffic controllers and those in the military would have been required to work without pay, even though most would have gotten back pay once the shutdown ended. Most low-wage federal contractors, on the other hand, would have been out of luck. The blame falls squarely on MAGA extremists acting on Donald Trump's orders, hard-right House Republicans who would have taken America hostage. There was no reason for this close call. In May, House Republican leaders agreed to a very specific deal to fund the government. Then they reneged on it, proposing instead to cut housing subsidies for the poor, just as soaring rents drive a national affordability crisis, taking nutritional assistance away from more than a million women and children, cutting home heating assistance just as we head into the winter months. At least the Senate had the sense to come up with a bipartisan continuing resolution to keep the government open. This shootout inside the Republican Party was all about showing Trump who was willing to fight the hardest, regardless of whether any of it made any sense even for them. The rest of the country was almost caught in the crossfire. And we're still not out of the woods. The continuing resolution just kicks the can down the road. My advice to the rest of America? Well, remember this as we head into election season and vote accordingly. Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know there are urgent things happening in the world around you, but all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before, or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure out what next. What Next? 